tonight's podcast is coming from Disneyland, which makes a lot of sense since when I was here, and it's a magical place, I realized I always say there's nothing magical about IVF. And I mean that. That's what we're going to talk about tonight. Tonight, we're going to talk about what are the treatment options out there. We'll go over them a little bit. From the most magical place in the world, this is Dr. Mark Amos, and this is Taco About Fertility Tuesday. So some of you may already know these options and other of you may have not even seen the doctor yet. So this is really for everyone to discuss what options are available. So after seeing your fertility doctor or after your OBGYN, there will be options given to you about treatments. Now, clearly, there are some treatments that are specific to certain problems. So for example, if your tubes have been tied, then the only option will be IVF or having a tubal reversal. Even that's not always possible due to certain types of tubal um, reversals require a certain amount of length to the fallopian tubes. And if your surgery cut them off and burnt them, it may not even be possible. Now, let's just start with the most simplest option, which is trying on your own. So even before seeing your doctor, you have the option of trying on your own. Now, I think the most important part with this option is to understand that when you're doing this, most people are doing things like ovulation kits, um, basal body temperature. The most important part with this is you have to be having intercourse before you ovulate. From the point, once you ovulate, the egg is only good for 24 hours. So waiting to ovulation is the worst time to have intercourse. It's always better to have intercourse prior to ovulation. Matter of fact, sperm can live in the reproductive tract for up to four to five days. Now the patients who should not be trying intercourse at home, even when you're starting to want to get pregnant, are people who don't have regular cycles. You need to be having 20, 30-day cycles. If you're having cycles every three months or one month is 28 days, the next month it's 45 days, then you already know there's a problem. There is absolutely no reason to start trying on your own. Matter of fact, if you have a history of infertility or if you have a, a known reason that will make you not be able to get pregnant, there is no reason to even try on your own. Now, for most people, that isn't the situation, so they will try, and we recommend trying for about one year. However, if you are over 35 or if you have a potential problem, such as endometriosis or a history of infertility or male factor issues that you know of, anything that could possibly affect your fertility, after six months, you should see a fertility doctor. Now. The next option that comes up is called ovulation induction with timed intercourse. And this is just a fancy way of saying making you ovulate or ovulate several eggs and then having intercourse on your own. 
Now, this is not a great option if you have sperm problems, since making extra eggs isn't going to help the sperm. It's also not a great option if you've been trying for a year and haven't got pregnant and you have normal cycles. Now, I'll explain each of these. If you're not ovulating at all, and now you take a medicine that makes you ovulate, you obviously increase your chances of this working. Most of the time, this is going to be a med like Clomid. It could be a med called Femara. But the point is, you're going from not ovulating to ovulating. And as most people know, no one can get pregnant without ovulating unless you are married. And just in case if you didn't get that, Mary, who gave birth to Jesus. Now, when it comes to ovulation induction, one of the problems I see is a lot of doctors will put people on Clomid with timed intercourse who have been trying for the last year or two on their own, who have regular cycles every month. And, and this is wrong. If you are on Clomid and you haven't got pregnant in a year of trying, and you have regular monthly cycles and they are known to ovulate, there is no reason to be doing this. And the reason why is because if you've been trying for a year and you haven't got pregnant releasing 12 eggs over the last year, and most people after three months, 50% of people are pregnant, you're not going to get pregnant because you released two eggs. There is no secret society in your body that says, okay, everybody, this person is not allowed to get pregnant unless we see two eggs. I don't care if they released 12 eggs this year, 24 eggs in the last two years. If I do not see two eggs, do not let them get pregnant. I assure you that society does not exist in your body. And so if you've released 12 eggs and you haven't got pregnant, why would your body then not let you get pregnant? Because there's two now. It just doesn't make any sense why it would or why it wouldn't. The point is, if you're ovulating every month, and you've been doing this for at least 12 months, don't do Clomid in time intercourse. It's a waste of your time. So who is Clomid in time intercourse good for? Well, that's going to be people who don't ovulate. Because again, if you don't ovulate, and unless you're married, you're not going to get pregnant. The second group of people who should try Clomid are people who have subfertility. So this is going to be someone who been trying for maybe three to six months and just wants to increase their chances, it's not unreasonable for a doctor to say, you know, let's just put you on Clomid and try. It, it definitely is just trying and it's not doing anything scientific. The same point would be is let's say, for example, you only have one tube, but you had ovaries on both sides. It wouldn't be unreasonable to say, let's make two eggs each month and maybe we'll make an egg on each side and we'll improve their chances. Again, I don't think there's anything wrong with that. And I think most important, it's never wrong to try this. I wouldn't say any doctor is wrong for doing this. I would be very shocked if a doctor who's a reproductive doctor did this, but it's never wrong. No one's ever going to get hurt by doing it unless you're older. And, and that's probably the only group that should be most careful about this are women who are 40 and over because you'll be wasting time. And the more time you waste, the less chance you're going to have when you really are undergoing treatments. Clomid is such a weak drug that they have shown in studies that if you take 40 women who are all age 40 and you give them all Clomid and you did an IUI cycle with all of them, 
only one extra person will get pregnant that month. It doesn't mean only one will get pregnant, but of the people who get pregnant, only one extra person will get pregnant with Clomid. This is why you'll never see me using Clomid on someone who's 40 years of age or older and IUIs because the chances are so low because at 40 years of age, 60 to 70% of your embryos will be abnormal. So making one egg at a time or two eggs at a time is not enough. Usually you have to be more aggressive. Now, again, there are situations where this is appropriate. Maybe someone's never ovulated before. Maybe they do have better reserve. But the point is, in general, especially for timed intercourse, this is just too little, too late. The next option is an option for male factor infertility. And that's seeing a urologist. Although fertility doctors can fix a lot of male factor problems with treatment options, there are some times when you have to see a urologist to help with certain issues. For example, if men have no sperm, then the urologist will need to extract the sperm using several techniques. One of these is called a PESA. There's a thing called a TESA or even a TESI. And these things I'll go into more in depth when I go over male factor infertility in another podcast. But in general, there are times you have to see a urologist to extract sperm. The other time a urologist comes into play is when a man has a vasectomy and wants to have it reversed. The other issue would be if we want to increase the sperm count by putting him on medications. So some men who have low testosterone may have a low sperm count. And they can be put on the med, such as Clomid, to help increase their sperm count. Now, the next option would be surgery. And sometimes when you see your doctor, you may need surgery for various things. One thing could be polyps. Many women have these things called polyps inside their uterus. A polyp is like a skin tag, but inside the uterus. And that skin tag can create a couple problems. One, it has poor blood supply. So if the embryo lands on that skin tag, there is a chance you will either not get pregnant or have a miscarriage. The second issue is that skin tag acts kind of like an IUD, which stands for intrauterine device. It creates inflammation and that inflammation can prevent you from getting pregnant. I've had many patients who only had a polyp. We removed it and then they get pregnant. The other type of surgeries that come into play are things such as reversing a tubal ligation. Now, this isn't as common anymore because IVF is much more successful now, but there are still times when a tubal reversal makes more sense than undergoing IVF. One thing to keep in mind is very few people do tubal reversals anymore. So if you're going to undergo one, Make sure you have a doctor who not only has done a lot of these, but has done a lot, has done a lot of these in the most recent years. The last surgery that comes up a lot are women with endometriosis. And this is a very difficult situation because removing endometriosis does help infertility. When removing it, you can also cause harm. For example, if you're older, 
and you undergo removal of a endometrioma, which is a ball of endometriosis on the ovary, you could potentially hurt the ovarian reserve and reduce the amount of eggs you can make. Matter of fact, many young women who have undergone multiple, multiple surgeries for endometriosis come and see me, and their ovarian reserve is very poor because it hurts the ovary with a surgery. Now, the question is, why is that? Well, because when you remove an endometrioma, you have to cut open the ovary to get to the endometrioma. And common sense would make you think that the eggs are inside of the ovary. But in reality, the, the eggs aren't on the inside. They actually sit on the surface of the ovary. So when you cut the ovary or you burn the ovary, you're actually killing the eggs. They're there. So does this mean you shouldn't undergo surgery if you have endometriosis? No. But it means you should talk to your doctor and figure out, is this the right decision for you? Because if you just have a little bit of endometriosis or a small endometrioma, it may make more sense to just proceed with IVF. However, if that endometrioma is so large that it would actually make it difficult to undergo IVF due to making it difficult to get the retrieval because the endometrioma would be in the way of the needle getting into the ovary, then it would make sense to do surgery. Usually, four centimeters is kind of the dividing line of when and when not to do surgery. I personally also look at, is the patient having discomfort? If I know a patient is in a lot of pain or the quality of life is poor, I'm more likely to recommend doing surgery because now I'm at least treating two things. But again, all these things have to go in to the decision-making and that should be done between you and your doctor. The next procedure are intrauterine inseminations, also called IUIs. And IUIs are a big staple of fertility treatment. It's kind of the first line treatment when you see a fertility doctor. And there are essentially a few groups that should be doing IUIs, and there are groups that shouldn't be doing IUIs. So if you're treating sperm issues, then IUIs are perfect. Matter of fact, that's what IUIs are for. However, a lot of people get diagnosed with what's called unexplained infertility. Unexplained infertility is one of the most annoying diagnoses you can get. Basically, you feel like the doctor doesn't even know what's wrong. And that's not true. Unexplained infertility should really be called, I don't want to spend a lot of money trying to figure out what this is, when in the end, you're still just going to do the same treatment. And that's really what unexplained infertility is. Doing things like IVF will actually help you figure out what's wrong. But unexplained infertility, I break people into kind of two groups. People who have been trying for less than three years, and people who have been trying for greater than three years. If you've been trying for greater than three years, I find IUIs don't work as well when it's unexplained infertility. Because in my mind, if you even think about it, if you've released the egg 36 times in the last three years, why would injecting a little sperm past your cervix make it work? In my mind, I'm thinking, does this woman have the most hostile vagina on earth that's not allowing this sperm to get past there? The chances of that are very small. Now, again, if you have male factor problems, completely different situation. That wouldn't be unexplained. 
But if we just don't know why you're not getting pregnant, and it's been at least three years or more, I usually recommend people go on to IVF. Now, if they try IUIs, I remind them that at least at my clinic, we find less than 20% of people get pregnant with IUIs after three years of trying on their own. Now, if it's under three years, we find about 50% of people get pregnant doing IUIs. Now, the question is, what are you treating with IUIs? Well, the thought is you're treating either sperm problems that we talked about, or if it's not a sperm problem, it's unexplained, then we're thinking it must be something like sperm antibodies, cervical issues where the sperm's not getting past the cervix, small sperm problems that maybe you can't see, or a hostile environment. Now, in the past, we used to test for sperm antibodies. We even used to test for how the environment was in the vagina with the sperm. We call it a postcoital test. Now, some places still do this, but most places don't. And the reason why is because in the end, the treatment's still going to be IUI. So if it's unexplained, then most people just go to IUI and give that a try first. Personally, I think the biggest problem with IUIs and why they don't work is not because you're not a good candidate for it, but I find a lot of doctors don't put enough time into them. I think there's a few important things with IUIs that a lot of doctors just don't focus on. So first, how aggressive you are. Having someone do an IUI with Clomid is the weakest form of IUI you can do. And don't get me wrong, it's safe and it prevents high-order multiples. But just using a little bit of knowledge, using a patient's history, you can be more aggressive and make sure to make the right amount of eggs for a woman without putting them at a high risk for multiples. Now, this equation to come up with this is something that takes time. There's no book. And it's not always perfect. Even myself, I have had people who have had more than two, meaning more than twins, but very few times in my career because you can determine this by their age and by how many eggs they need to make, as well as their history. But the other issue I see a lot of times is that people don't take IUIs serious. Usually you get one ultrasound and then they trigger you. To really make IUIs work, you need to treat it kind of like an IVF cycle. You have to halfway through it, see how it's going. Do you need to increase the meds? Do you need to decrease them? You have to make sure to capture ovulation at the right time. If you miss it, like we talked about in the beginning, you're not going to get pregnant because the egg is only good for 24 hours. So one of the things we do is we check estrogen levels at the same time. That way we know when the estrogen level gets high enough, you're going to possibly ovulate and we know when to trigger you or when to do the IUI. And this is really important because one of the things that's different about IUIs versus IVF is in IVF, you're preventing ovulation. But most places don't prevent ovulation with IUIs. And the problem is your body doesn't have an egg sensor in it knowing when to ovulate. It's not like the body's snare going... The egg is about done, but instead it looks at the hormones and that when an egg is mature, usually the estrogen level 
will be approximately 100 to 200 picograms per deciliter. And what happens is, is that when you're making more eggs, that estrogen level will go up faster. And you'll actually ovulate earlier than you would naturally. So naturally, you may ovulate when the follicle size is like 22. But when you have three follicles, it's probably going to ovulate between 16 and 18. And so it's very important to look at these estrogen levels and not just look at size. Matter of fact, if some of you have been through IVF, you probably remember getting symptoms of ovulation during your IVF and probably were worried you were going to ovulate. But you really weren't getting symptoms of ovulation. You were getting symptoms that you associate with ovulation. Because normally when you ovulate, you start getting things like more discharge, changes in your cervical mucus. And that's not happening because of ovulation. That's happening because of estrogen levels. So in IVF, when your estrogen levels go up faster and higher, you will start seeing those symptoms which you associate with ovulation earlier. But in reality, it's not ovulation. It's just estrogen. So my point is, I love IUIs. I think they're great. I actually have more fun with IUIs than IVF because I really have to challenge myself to pick the right protocol and get the timing exactly correct. Whereas in IVF, it's pretty easy because we're preventing everything from going wrong. So if you feel like your doctor isn't doing those things, then IUIs probably aren't going to have as much success there. One of the last treatment modalities we're going to discuss is IVF, the holy grail of fertility treatment. And IVF, as I said from the beginning, is not magical. IVF cannot get you pregnant if there are severe problems. If your eggs are severely, severely poor, you are not going to get pregnant through IVF. If the sperm is severely abnormal, IVF can't fix that. But what IVF can do is IVF can bypass most of the problems that it encounters. So if there is severe sperm problems, we can do a process called ICSI intracytoplasmic sperm injection and put the sperm right into the egg. If there is a problem with fertilization, we can inject the sperm in the egg. If there is just problems with the tubes, we can bypass the tubes. Matter of fact, one of the things IVF allows is IVF lets us know a lot more of what's going on. I tell people all the time, IVF is both a treatment and the most expensive test you will ever do because we learn a lot. I may not always get everyone pregnant, but I can usually figure out what's wrong. I had a patient recently who underwent IVF and they weren't getting pregnant. And she ended up getting 10 embryos and of those 10 embryos, eight of them came back abnormal, and in those eight abnormal embryos, we saw that they had a problem with a chromosomal issue that was being passed down every time. There's absolutely no way we could have known that was going on until that IVF procedure. 
Not sure you could have done a test looking at karyotypes in every single person, but that wouldn't make sense. No one would have suspected this because she didn't have recurrent miscarriages. But the point is we learned something and we were able to treat it and get them pregnant. See, the thing about IVF is you have to go into it realizing it's not magic. It just helps us bypass everything. And it's important to keep that in mind because when you do IVF, it's very scary. Because you feel like it's the last treatment you're ever going to do. As I tell people all the time, there's no IVF 2.0. So when you fail IVF, you feel like, I'm never going to have a kid. And that's not an unreasonable thing to think. But it's not true. Many people who fail IVF get pregnant later. Matter of fact, I think there's more of a chance of failing IVF and getting pregnant than failing IUIs and getting pregnant. Because when an IUI fails, nobody knows what's wrong. But when IVF fails, you can look at the information and then you can make changes and then try again. So you're not just doing the same thing over and over. You're making the adjustments, which allows IVF to work at such a high rate. Now, the last few treatments are pretty self-explanatory. When women do have problems with their eggs, and unfortunately cannot make eggs themselves anymore, they can go on to what's called donor eggs, or sometimes called donor oocytes. And that's where they use someone else's egg and puts it with their partner's sperm and make an embryo. And then just like an IVF, we put that embryo into their uterus and they'll deliver the baby. They can breastfeed the baby. Everything else will be the same, except the egg didn't come from them. Another option is donor sperm. In this situation, there are some men who do not have sperm and will never be able to get sperm. And what's great about that option is it allows couples to still have a child using donor sperm. Now, other people use donor sperm because they just want to have a kid on their own. Or possibly in their relationship, they don't have sperm. The last option is donor embryos. This is an option for some people who would rather adopt an embryo. This is just like adopting a child, except now you get to carry the child, which is a great option for some people. The last option would be adoption. Adoption is a great thing. And many people do it. Few people see the fertility doctor for adoption, but I still always like to mention it to everyone so they know all their options. Hopefully this episode was helpful for some of you. Knowing the different options might help make the step towards coming to a fertility doctor a little bit easier. Maybe it may just help you realize what you're doing isn't the right thing for you. But anyways, hopefully this was helpful for everyone. Over the next few weeks, I'm going to be doing some podcasts that are really interesting. I'm going to be doing some on PCOS, some on endometriosis. I have some on male factor infertility, but one of my favorites coming up is on PGS, pregenetic screening, which has also been called CCS, PGTA, 
sometimes gets confused with things called PGD. And in that podcast, we're really going to go over what it is, why to do it, why not to do it, what are some of the controversies with it, talking a lot about things like mosaic embryos. It's going to be a very interesting discussion. So if you have any questions, please send me those questions to our email and I'll answer them. Again, if you like the podcast and you're really enjoying it, please go and review us, go to iTunes and rate us so that way more people can hear about us. Until next time, have a great magical day. I'll see you next week. For Taco Bell, Fertility Tuesdays. 